Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The video opens with a man staring silently into the camera, a stern expression on his face. He's white-haired with rimless glasses, probably in his 70s, wearing a beige blazer over an open-collared blue shirt and black jumper. It's a grey day. The small lake behind him is gently rippling, the trees that line it swaying in a hint of breeze. The footage is a bit grainy. It looks like a home video. A minute in, and he's still standing there, still staring, still silent. After one minute and ten seconds, he turns and walks towards the lake, picks up a rock and throws it in. As he walks away, some text appears on the screen. Gravel2008.us The white-haired man was Mike Gravel, a former two-term senator for Alaska. The video wasn't a piece of Dadaist art, but rather a campaign ad for his outsider and low-budget run for the 2008 Democratic presidential nomination. Gravel was never considered a serious candidate. But in the Trump age, do we even know what a serious candidate looks like? With 25 days to go until the midterm elections, I'm John Prideaux and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how much do candidates matter in the midterms? A celebrity doctor who recently lived out of state. An ex-football player beset by controversy. When Mitch McConnell said that candidate quality might handicap Republicans' chances of taking the Senate, it's likely he was referring to Mehmet Oz and Herschel Walker. Democrats have some flawed candidates too, but the Republican bad batch is getting more attention. Why is that? Do candidates make a difference? Or will voters' partisan reflexes disguise their flaws? With me to answer the perennial question of how much candidate quality matters in elections in America are Idris Kaloun and John Fasman. Charlotte is away this week. She seems to have taken a week off to bask in her success in last week's quiz performance. Idris, you've been on the trail this week. Georgia, Miami, how have you found that? Yeah, it's been very good. Any job that sends you to Miami is a good one. So very lucky to be there. And uh, also interesting time to be in Atlanta. Uh, shortly after all of the Herschel Walker uh, scandal broke. Yes, that was good timing. And John, you've also been on the trail. Could tell us a bit about your travels. I've been in Providence, Rhode Island, reporting the next episode of the Intelligence's midterm series, which you should be able to hear next Wednesday. And uh, where I went to university about a million years ago. I haven't set foot here in 
16 years, it's a good city. I might even say it has my complete and total endorsement. And how strong has the nostalgia been going back to your college town? Extremely gratifyingly weak, I have to say. It's a lovely campus with a lot of, you know, healthy looking young people, none of which has anything to do with me. Uh, well, Idris, you mentioned you've been in Georgia recently, and that's no accident. Things are getting tighter at the moment in the key Senate races. And we're going to start with one of the most important of those in Georgia, where the Republican candidate Herschel Walker has faced a number of controversies, let's put it that way. Most recently, there's been a story that he paid for an ex-girlfriend to have an abortion and pressured her to have a second, which she refused. He denies this allegation. Walker's running on a staunch anti-abortion platform. And if the story is true, it makes him look pretty hypocritical, to say the least. There'd already been accusations from his ex-wife that he threatened to kill her and some confusion about how many children Walker actually has. Plus, if that were not enough, questions as to whether he's inflated his academic and business record. Stephen Fowler covers Georgia politics for Georgia Public Broadcasting. I asked him if these controversies are breaking through or whether the strength of partisanship is such that people who want to vote for Walker are just going to shrug it all off. I would say yes and no. You know, somebody isn't necessarily going to not vote for Herschel Walker because he said he was valedictorian when he wasn't actually valedictorian. But the steady drumbeat of stories and controversies and you know different bizarre statements that he's made about things like uh we don't need trees i'd rather have something else than trees and where he talked about our bad air from china floating over to the good air in america and things going back it just kind of creates a negative image of walker that he's not equipped to be one of the most powerful politicians in america and is the fact that Republicans have this candidate in Georgia who has all these problems, let's let's put it that way, is that Donald Trump's fault? I mean, would Herschel Walker have got the party's nomination in Georgia without Donald Trump's intervention? Honestly, it's probably likely he still would have won the nomination because of his cult status of his football skills. I mean, most Georgians know him as the Heisman Trophy winning University of Georgia running back that really was arguably one of the best college athletes that we've ever seen. And in the course of that, he's kind of built up this persona and this sort of larger than life figure in Georgia. Uh, it's hard to say if he would have gotten in the race without Donald Trump's urging because Herschel Walker was living in Texas before all of this. He hadn't lived in Georgia in years and wasn't really tied to Georgia other than his past. And so Donald Trump recruited him as part of this crop of Senate candidates that are now struggling in an alternate reality you would have maybe Georgia's Agriculture Commissioner Gary Black, who is a well-liked bipartisan person who probably could have given Raphael Warnock a run for the money. So Donald Trump does play an outsized role in this situation that we have here. But it's not solely Donald Trump that got us to this point. And Stephen, how scandalous do you think a scandal has to be these days in American politics for it to sink a candidate? Because you might have thought that the allegations against Walker, you know, particularly the allegations that he threatened to kill his ex-wife, would really be enough, right? I mean, it's clearly possible to sink a candidacy through scandal. I think Roy Moore, who ran um, as the Republican Senate candidate in Alabama, is pretty good proof of that. But it seems that the Walker scandals or or controversies, let's call them, don't quite 
don't quite reach that threshold? Or is it the fact that because he has such a strong pre-existing brand, as you say, as the you know star footballer for Georgia, that that kind of overrides everything? I think scandals may be the wrong word for this because in some ways people aren't surprised by this. Um, in other ways, many people aren't surprised that it doesn't seem to matter as much. You know, I think it's a controversy because Herschel Walker has been such a staunch opponent of abortion rights and of any sort of abortion laws on the books other than strict bans. And so there's a certain element of hypocrisy to it. There's also the doubling down and uh, saying that it's not true, even though the woman allegedly has evidence. Um, But it's not really a scandal if it doesn't really change that many people's minds. And there are plenty of people that don't believe the allegations and won't believe the allegations. And Also, I think the stakes of not having a Democrat in the Senate and having a Republican in that Senate seat is more important to people than the past. And there's this concept of redemption and that, yes, Herschel did things in his past that maybe weren't that great and maybe weren't that true. And because he is a Christian believer and believer in saving grace and redemption, that he should be forgiven for whatever he did, even though he's not admitting that he did any of those things. So it's 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 an interesting conversation that we're having here where there are politicians and voters that are a lot more willing to let a lot more go in pursuit of the greater power. Idris, this is a real close contest, but I think Herschel Walker is probably the worst candidate in the cycle just by a whisker. You were in Georgia this week doing some reporting. What did you find down there that you didn't know before you set off? I had not quite realized the divergence between the two marquee races that are going on in the state. So there's obviously the Walker and Warnock race, which we've been talking about. But there's also this intensely watched uh, gubernatorial rematch between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. And because Walker has been self-immolating in such dramatic fashion, we've been focused on him, and he seems to be trailing Raphael Warnock by a few points. But if you look at what's happening in the gubernatorial race, we see that uh, Stacey Abrams is a lot behind Brian Kemp. And that, I think, is maybe as clean a measure of what candidate quality can do as any that you'll find in this midterm cycle. And one particularly interesting reason that seems to be cropping up in polls is that African-American voters seem to be not as much in favor of Stacey Abrams as they are for Raphael Warnock, and that might be driving some of the disparity. My colleague Miranda Mitra and I spoke with her about this issue. We know that there are no monoliths in politics, uh, but there have been loyalties that are important. And I take none of these loyalties for granted. Part of my intention has always been to meet communities where they are and to be very thoughtful about asking for their help and asking for their vote, because to do otherwise is deeply disrespectful. I am doing as well with Black voters as I was in 2018. I am doing exactly the same as Senator Raphael Warnock. But what is often lost in the horse race number is that this is not a question of whether they intend to vote for me or the other guy. It is whether they intend to vote or not. 
John, as Idris points out, that gubernatorial race in Georgia is quite strange. I mean, Stacey Abrams has been such a star in the Democratic Party, and yet it looks pretty likely that she's going to lose. Meanwhile, Raphael Warnock, the incumbent Democratic senator, looks fairly comfortably ahead against Herschel Walker. So I'm not quite sure what to make of this, particularly given that ticket splitting is meant to be dead. You know, maybe, though Democrats won't thank me for saying this, maybe Stacey Abrams is you know, a very good political organizer, but not actually a great candidate. I think there's some truth to that. I think also in Georgia, Brian Kemp gets a lot of credit, as Stacey Abrams puts it, for not committing treason. Or if you want to phrase it more generously, he gets a lot of credit for believing something that used to be a basic belief among politicians of all parties, that your oath to the Constitution is more important than your loyalty to a single person, right? He stood up to Donald Trump. And so a lot of those suburban Republicans that broke off in 2021 to put Ossoff and Warnock into the Senate... I think are coming back to Brian Kemp. Now, the question that raises is, is there a Democratic candidate who could have retained those suburban sort of swing voters? It's not Stacey Abrams. She's perceived as too far to the left. Is there another candidate who have gotten through the primary, beat Abrams, and presented a stronger challenge to Kemp? I'm not sure that's the case. But the question of bad candidates isn't unique to Republicans, right? We see a few of them on the Democratic side as well. You've got in Wisconsin, a state that's older, whiter, and more rural than average. The Democrats nominated Mandela Barnes, who I think is a perfectly competent, qualified candidate, would make a fine senator. But he has, in fact, been recorded advocating for the abolition of ICE and for defunding police. And that, of course, is going to be used against him. Ron Johnson is hitting him really hard on crime. Now, if you're on the left, you think that's unfair and you think that's a coded racial attack. There's probably something to that. But it is just a fact of politics. In Florida, you've got Charlie Crist, who's a three-time loser for the Senate, who seems to have been a sacrificial lamb for the Democrats to run against DeSantis. And then in Texas, you've got Beto O'Rourke, who sort of occupies a similar position to Abrams, right? He's a darling of -of out-of-state donors. He's very charismatic. He's very articulate. But again, he was recorded saying, hell yes, we're coming for your AR-15s, not the way to win a race in Texas. Now, those three candidates are all bad, I think, in a categorically different way from Walker, right? Walker seems to have, at best, a rudimentary grip on political issues. Barnes, Christ, and O'Rourke just seem like the wrong candidates for the moment. Okay, let's pause things there for now, because in a moment, we're going to try and work out who the worst Senate candidates of all time have been. But first, the usual reminder, with less than a month until the midterms, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist, if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. Just to hog the microphone for a sec, the things I've most enjoyed from the past week's coverage are David Rennie's extraordinarily good special report on China, and also the anonymous diary of a Ukrainian soldier, which we published on economist.com. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. Go get yourself a subscription if you don't have one already. I'm not a witch. I'm nothing you've heard. I'm you. It's not a sign of a healthy campaign when a candidate has to deny they dabble in the occult. None of us are perfect. But none of us can be happy with what we see all around Christine O'Donnell was the Republican candidate for Delaware's Senate seat in the 2010 midterms and a devout Catholic. But she had a past. Because I dabbled into witchcraft, I hung around people who, who were doing these things. O'Donnell had been a regular guest on Bill Maher's talk show in the 1990s, 
and footage started to resurface once she'd won the Republican primary. One of my first dates with the witch was on a satanic altar, and I didn't know it. And, I mean, there's little blood Wait, there you, and stuff like that. was a date. O'Donnell's rebuttal, if anything, drew more attention to her youthful wackiness. And there were more clips, including this one from MTV. The Bible says that lust in your heart is committing adultery. So you, you can't masturbate without lust. If he already knows what pleases him and he can please himself, then why am I in the picture? O'Donnell had been a pro-abstinence activist in the 90s. She thought masturbation was a sin, that it was wrong to teach kids sex education, and that condoms didn't stop AIDS. She was not an ideal candidate for the US Senate. Ladies and gentlemen, the people of Delaware have spoken. She also hadn't been expected to win her primary. No more politics as usual. U.S. Representative and former governor Mike Castle was the favorite for the nomination and would have had a pretty easy path to victory in the midterms. There's another woman I got to thank. You betcha. (laughs) Thank you, Governor Palin, for your endorsement. But the Tea Party movement was challenging the hold of establishment Republicans on the party, and O'Donnell became one of its figureheads. By the time anyone took her candidacy seriously enough to dig into her past, it was too late. Be encouraged. We have won. The Delaware political system will never be the same. It may not have sounded like it from her concession speech, but O'Donnell ended up losing a winnable race by 17 points. She wasn't the only Republican candidate dogged by their past in 2010. An odd story did the rounds about Tea Party favorite Rand Paul's college exploits. Well, I guess the first question is, did you ever tie any women up and and have them kneel before their uh, god? uh, What is it, Aqua Buddha? Did you ever do that? How do you even respond to something so ridiculous? But unlike his female counterpart on the East Coast, Paul was almost helped by the drama, with conservative Kentuckians thinking his opponent's attack ads went too far. He won easily. In Nevada, Majority Leader Harry Reid's seat was vulnerable. Let's go and let's take back our Senate seat Republican liberty lovers, thank you. Thank you very much. But Tea Party candidate Sharon Angle's disorganized campaign was outmaneuvered by the powerful Reid machine. Tea Party darling Marco Rubio was elected in Florida, but Ken Buck lost in Colorado in a tight race a less conservative candidate would probably have won. All these candidates beat the establishment GOP picks in their primaries thanks to Tea Party support. But when it came to the general election, the results were more mixed. Yeah, now, I, I'm not recommending for every future president that they take a shellacking like, they, like I did last night. The 2010 midterms were a bloodbath for President Obama and his party. The Democrats' worst results for 70 years. Republicans won a majority of 63 seats in the House and did well in state elections, riding on the enthusiasm and anti-Obama fervor of the Tea Party wave. But despite this, Democrats just kept control of the Senate. It had been a tough ask. Republicans needed to flip 10 seats. They took six. It was a good showing, but the party fell just short. Much about the 2010 cycle feels familiar now. A Democratic president in his first midterms with House and Senate majorities to lose, and some atypical Republican candidates. The difference is that in 2022, 
Republicans need to flip just one Senate seat to win control of the chamber. If they can't manage it this time, that will be an even bigger own goal than 2010. John Idris, it seems to me that Herschel Walker is the Christine O'Donnell of this cycle. He seems to be by far and away the worst Senate candidate. Before we get on to the debate about worst Senate candidates of all time, will either of you fight me on that or do you both agree? I think if you define worst Senate candidate, not in terms of whether or not they lose, but how much they underperform, how well they should be doing, I would argue that J.D. Vance could prove to be a worse Senate candidate, even though he's likely to win in Ohio. It's just that Ohio is such a red state that it shouldn't be even be as close as it is right now. Uh, so I think by that metric, he might prove to be a bit worse. You know, Herschel Walker, for all of his um, peccadilloes, is in polls running pretty closely. Okay, Fasman, how about you? Are you going with Walker or do you also pick J.D. Vance from this cycle? I'm not going to fight you on that. I think Walker is probably probably the worst. He combines ignorance, odiousness, moral reprehensibility. He gets my crown for the worst. So, John, let's go a bit further back in time. Who do you think is the worst Senate candidate ever? The worst Senate candidate ever. I mean, that's a, that's a broad sweep. Let's do the worst Senate candidate of any race that I covered at any point in my career. So going back to the 1890s. <laughs> I'm going to start coloring my beard. Um, The worst Senate candidate, it has to be Roy Moore, right? Moore lost a Senate seat in Alabama as a Republican just a year after Donald Trump won the presidency in Alabama by around 30 points. Substantively, Moore was outrageous from the start, right? He was lawless in the sense that he had been kicked off Alabama Supreme Court twice, once for installing a monument of the Ten Commandments in violation of the Establishment Clause, and once for telling his fellow justices to ignore the Supreme Court's same-sex ruling. He had advocated for the criminalization of homosexuality. He argued that a Muslim lawmaker was unfit to take office purely because he was Muslim, again in violation of the First Amendment. But what sunk him was that he was dogged by accusations that he had shown an unbecoming interest in teenage girls while he was a district attorney for a county in, in Alabama. And that's what sunk him. I remember talking to evangelical voters all over Alabama who found Moore just personally repulsive and couldn't pull the ticket for him. That's how Doug Jones got into the Senate. I think that's a striking underperformance in, in Alabama. Yeah, the Roy Moore candidacy was a reminder of that thing that Edwin Edwards, who was a Louisiana Democrat, said before one election, which was, the only way I can lose this election is if I'm caught in bed with either a dead girl or a live boy. Yeah. Edwards also had a bumper sticker printed during his race against David Duke that said, vote for the crook. It's important. In that bumper sticker, by the way, he was the crook. Times were different. (laughs) Uh, Idris, does your vote go to Roy Moore or to somebody different? Can you make the case for someone else? Um, I'm going to make the case for someone different using different criteria, which is I I would put up Amy McGrath from my home state of Kentucky. Controversial. And, and, And the criteria is that she lit $91 million on fire to lose to Mitch McConnell by 20 points, which was six points worse than uh, than the Democrat had fared um, in the previous election. So I think in terms of money wasted per result, I mean, that has to rank among one of the worst, worst outcomes uh, I've ever seen. But she had such lovely adverts. What went wrong? So this is the problem, actually. This is actually a, a deep issue with American politics, is that structurally, because of social media, the incentive is to create a nice advertisement. You know, she was a fighter pilot and she talked about that. 
and you put that on Twitter, that gets retweeted, a bunch of journalists get fascinated by you, then a bunch of people out of Kentucky, you know, she didn't raise that money from Kentuckians, all that money comes in from out of state, because all these people are like, I hate Mitch McConnell, I'm going to give like $10 so that he loses. Um, And then that money just gets lit on fire. You see that, I mean, when we talk about why Democratic candidates are, are worse, they often raise huge amounts of money. And it's because of this dynamic. I mean, Sarah Gideon, who lost by I don't know, John, 13 points, 14 points to uh, Senator Collins in Maine. I mean, raised a tremendous amount of money because everyone got excited about sticking it to Collins for voting to appoint people onto the Supreme Court. So, you know, Democrats, when they put up bad candidates, it's in that way. It's not in the, you know, deeply morally compromised people like, you know, Roy Moore and Herschel Walker. I think Gideon is a great example. She was exactly the wrong candidate to run in Maine, but she seemed like exactly the right candidate for people in Washington who didn't really know Maine, right? She was from out of state. She was suburban. She couldn't compete with Collins's extremely deep ties in rural Maine. I mean, I went around Maine in 2020 with Collins and everybody in every little town either knew her or her dad who had been a mayor there. And the Gideon campaign was basically parachuted in an identical campaign run by people who are not from there. And I think that is part of the same disease that Idris is talking about. You guys have both gone for fairly recent candidates. The one I wanted to highlight was a Pennsylvania senator called Joe Guffey, who in 1946 lost by 20 points as an incumbent senator, which is really some going. You know, incumbency brings some advantages now in elections. But back in the 40s, the received wisdom that was incumbency brought huge advantages because you were able to bring back pork to your home district. So to lose by 20 points as an incumbent senator is some going. I mean, he did lose to the state's governor, who was pretty popular at the time. So maybe that was a mitigating circumstance. But still, that's a big, big loss. And then I also wanted to give an honorable mention to William A. Clark in Montana, who did actually win, but this was at a time when the Senate wasn't directly elected. And he managed to bribe his way into the Senate. Mark Twain wrote of William A. Clark, He is as rotten a human being as can be found anywhere under the flag. He is a shame to the American nation, and no one has helped to send him to the Senate who did not know that his proper place was the penitentiary with a bell and chain on his legs. Those are are very deep cuts. (laughs) We did try and answer this question with data, but it gets really hard for reasons that I debated with Dan Rosenheck, our data editor. I mean, Joe Manchin wins in a state that he should, by all rights, lose by miles, given that West Virginia is such a red state. Do you therefore conclude that his opponents have all been absolutely hopeless candidates? I I think not necessarily. So it is a question that you can bring some data to, as Idris has tried to, and uh, and John has, and I have. But it also requires a bit of subjective judgment. I think of the recent bunch, Roy Moore gets my vote for being the absolute worst. But going back a bit further, I think the picture is a bit muddier. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to consider how candidates might make the difference in another crucial Senate race. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Right, now it is time to check back in on that Pennsylvania Senate race, which we've been following closely. And it's pretty relevant to our conversation about candidates today. John, you've been in Pennsylvania recently. Yeah, I agree that it's appropriate to talk about Pennsylvania Senate race in an episode where we're thinking and talking about how much candidate quality matters. And that's because John Fetterman, the Democrat, and his opponent, Mehmet Oz, both have some pretty striking weaknesses. I'd been working the phones and reading about Fetterman for a while. I'd hoped to talk to him in Braddock, a kind of rough, down-at-heel suburb of Pittsburgh where he was mayor for more than a decade, and where he still lives despite being lieutenant governor. Fetterman's campaign keeps him pretty locked down. But I got close. And it was this idea that, you know, there's so much excess. That's Giselle Fetterman, John's wife. She runs the free store in town, where anyone can drop off stuff they don't need, and others can take it for free. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you about the campaign? Maybe. Okay. Giselle wasn't expecting my visit. I'd been trying to secure an interview with her husband for weeks to no avail. I pitched up in Braddock to see what I could find. Giselle was gracious, but she didn't give much away. Um, But we've done our best to make it fun, Uh, to make it engaging, and I think we've run a campaign like no other. When we last checked in on the Pennsylvania Senate race over the summer, Fetterman had a nine-point lead in the polls. His everyman appeal and down-to-earth charm seemed to be the perfect weapon against his Republican opponent, Mehmet Oz, a famous TV doctor dogged by accusations that he was a carpetbagger from New Jersey. But then Oz started going negative by questioning Fetterman's fitness for office. The Democrat had a stroke in May. And he seems to have gained real traction by painting Fetterman as soft on crime. He'd release one-third of prisoners and eliminate life sentences for murderers, saying, get as many folks out as we can. Emptying our prisons means more hardened criminals on the streets, hurting our communities. We need a change. I'm Dr. Oz, and I approve this message. The Oz campaign has spent $4.6 million on ads attacking Fetterman's record. As lieutenant governor, he's led efforts to pardon more people and commute more sentences. Republican voters may not much like the idea of voting for someone with such strong ties to another state, but they like the idea of a Democrat-controlled Senate even less. It seems like a lot of them who are wavering have reluctantly come home, and the race is now pretty much a toss-up. My wife wants some vegetables for crudite, right? So, But even in a purple state, Dr. Oz, with his penchant for own goals, should be an easy opponent. Here's a broccoli. That's two bucks. Not a ton of broccoli there. A bizarre video of him trying to relate to voters over price spikes featured him complaining about the high prices of crudite and getting the name of a local chain store wrong. Thought I did some grocery shopping. I'm at Wegner's. The video went viral and added to his out-of-touch image. Six dollars? Must be a shortage of salsa. Democrats also seized on an article claiming his scientific experiments killed 300 dogs, which his campaign denies. And last week, at a fundraiser in California... He gave a speech standing in front of a limousine that had been owned by Adolf Hitler. And Fetterman is a canny politician. Despite going to Harvard and being supported by his wealthy family well into his 40s, he's maintained his aura of working-class authenticity. So why isn't he leaving Oz in the dust? 
has someone, maybe personally, yourself, has ever had a big, major health challenge? His health really is an issue. Although he's back on the campaign trail, he's not the energetic performer he was in the primary, and he's doing limited press. His team says he has lingering auditory processing problems. In a recent interview with NBC News, he had to use a transcription program on his computer so he could read the questions that the journalist, who was sitting just a couple of meters away, was asking him. Perhaps it's not surprising that he wouldn't meet with me. He's agreed to just one debate in late October, well after early voting has started, and he's insisted on accommodations for his health issues. Fetterman may well be on the way to a full recovery, but if his impairment is more serious than his campaign has said, he'll seem slippery and evasive, two attributes at odds with his plain-spoken persona. And while he has legions of fans, plenty of politicians don't really like him. I talked to a party insider who called him aloof, and a state representative who's surprised when people call him a good man. Some people here, they like John Fetterman, and some people here, they feel like he used Braddock to get to where he is. While I was in his hometown of Braddock, I also spoke with Shardaya Jones, who succeeded Fetterman as mayor. He would come on the news every time someone got shot and get his arm tattooed with whomever's name or initials, but that's as much as you've seen him. And you didn't, you came in as mayor after him? Yes. You didn't have a personal relationship with him, a phone number? He didn't say, call me if you need anything, anything like that? We've never had a conversation. <laughs> that's really surprising. Yes. Now, maybe the disdain that some of Fetterman's fellow politicians have for him will be a mark in his favor from voters, who, of course, are none too fond of politicians themselves. We'll know on November 9th whether John Fetterman is a Democratic savior, a blueprint for winning back disaffected white working-class voters, or whether he's yet another promising also-ran, who in the end couldn't outrun his flaws. Idris, I found this Pennsylvania race pretty confusing to follow for a number of reasons. But just on the candidate quality thing, I began by thinking that Mehmet Oz was actually a pretty good candidate because being famous, well-known from TV, didn't seem to do Donald Trump any harm. And then it became clearer and clearer that he was out of touch and you had that hilarious crudite video. But since then, I've sort of started to wonder about that question that John raised there, which is whether John Fetterman has been given a bit of an easy ride by the media. I mean, I think we're all sympathetic to the fact that he's had health problems. But politics is a brutal business and you don't get accommodations for having had a stroke. And the points John made there about the auditory processing problems, having to have questions read rather than being able to listen to them and respond. I mean, that sounds that sounds pretty bad to me. Yeah. And, you know, John is right that Fetterman has really avoided media. He's gotten a few very sympathetic profiles written about him. And I think that when we see him perform at the debate stage, we'll we'll see how well he's able to cope. And I think a lot of people will be watching that very closely. He hasn't so far released very much information about his health. He's released a letter from his doctor, basically saying that he's good to go without much more detail. I think that if the partisan affiliation were reversed, I think you might see a little bit more dogged investigation into quite how serious his condition is. And there's a great political science paper from uh, 12 years ago 
which I think is still relevant today, which basically examined newspaper coverage of political scandal and found that Democratic-aligned newspapers, by which they mean newspapers that tended to endorse Democrats from their editorial boards, covered scandals from Republicans much more frequently, even at the local level. And the opposite was true for Republican-affiliated newspapers. And when you magnify that to the current media landscape, I think you see why this this difference has borne out. And I think a lot of people, a lot of journalists get their information from Twitter. They see the funny crudités thing. They think this guy is terrible. And then they look at the polls and they see that he's not really that far behind. So what's the what's the disconnect? I think the disconnect is that, you know, people live in completely segregated informational ecosystems. And, you know, journalists are very taken with Fetterman because he wears hoodies and because he has funny tweets. But I think that the actual meaningful effect, which is on how voters are going to go, actually, you know, has been relatively muted. And this looks very similar to what you would expect against any Republican, even one who you would think would be doing as poorly as Dr. Oz, given how recently he moved into the state. Yeah, I think there's no question that Fetterman has gotten something of a free ride from the media and that his candidacy deserves a lot more scrutiny than it's gotten. One thing that surprised me about reporting in Pennsylvania, and I suspect, I'd like to hear from Idris, I suspect this is probably true with Senate races around the country, is just how disconnected from the state they've become. I mean, Fetterman is doing his best to emphasize his deep Pennsylvania roots because his opponent doesn't have any. But a lot of the ads, a lot of the issues, a lot of the rhetoric we hear, these races are all basically national now. There's very little talk about what you're going to do for the state itself. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And even the defenses of Herschel Walker that you've seen in Georgia are basically, I I, I don't care how much his personal actions conflict with my uh, supposed moral beliefs, I want control of the Senate. It's the sort of utilitarian calculation that Republicans said that they were making when they picked Donald Trump to be their main spokesperson. There's this calculation, basically, that uh, what matters is is power more than anything else. And yeah, I, I think you see all the big Senate races that are going on right now, whether it's Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, all revolve around these nationalized issues of abortion or crime or inflation or whether or not Biden's a socialist. There's vanishingly little specific about what to do in the state itself. That, that might partially be, just be our biases. Maybe it's that as, as sort of national reporters, we, we look at those things and amplify them. But I, I don't think that, that that's entirely true. I think that if you look even at the advertisements that people are running in these states, the hundreds of millions of dollars, I, I was looking, you know, the uh, total spending in this midterm cycle might be $9 billion, which is three times as much as in 2018, which is, you know, absolutely insane. And if you look at those ads, I mean, a lot of them are on these big issues. It is it is about abortion. It's about crime. Both parties have realized that drumming up fear is a really effective mobilizer. And that is what so many of these ads revolve around. There are lots of different factors that contribute to a candidate losing or winning a race, right? And so in some senses, it's invidious to just point to one and say, aha, that's the thing, because it's the interaction of all these things. We're talking about victories that are typically um, small margins in a country that's pretty much 50-50, right? But what I take from this, at least, is that though most of the political commentary over the past few years has rightly emphasized the incredible strength of partisanship in America, individual candidate quality probably matters more than I thought it did. Do you think that's a fair conclusion from all of this? I think individual candidate quality these days probably matters at the margins. 
in small states, as Idris just said, and in performance numbers that may not be decisive, as he pointed out with J.D. Vance. Herschel Walker may just be too grotesque a candidate for enough people to get behind. But if he is the bar, the bar is very high. Yeah, I I think even with, with Herschel Walker, you'll see a meaningful difference between that race and the governor's race, but it won't be a very large one. I mean, one thing I think about is when I went back and calculated from uh, election surveys, 90% of people who voted for Mitt Romney in 2012 voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Those two men, I think we can safely say, are on polar opposites of the morality spectrum. So, you know, candidate quality matters, but maybe less than people would hope that it did. Okay, before I let you guys go, I have a couple of quiz questions for you, and they're going to test your recall of the politics of a decade ago or so. At the start of this episode, we talked about Mike Gravel's outsider run for the Democratic nomination for president in 2008. The Economist only needed one word to write about his bid at the time. Who? We asked. Question one. Gravel did take part in the first Democratic debate that cycle in April 2007. How many of the other seven candidates on stage with him that night can you name? All right. Um, Barack Obama, Bill Richardson, uh, Hillary Clinton. Was John Edwards running? Or had he been tanked by then? Joe Biden? Yeah, it's a good start. You're missing two. Did Lieberman run? Not that year. Not that year. So, I'm going to put you out of your misery. Chris Dodd was one, the Connecticut senator. And the other, and this one will annoy you because you've forgotten him and he was colorful, Dennis Kucinich. Ah, that's right. He would have been the first elf American. (laughs) Um, Question two, and now we're getting really obscure. This is high-level quizzing. Two states almost lost their voting rights at the 2008 Democratic Convention. Which two and why? I have no idea. Um, What's the sort of thing that a state might do that would annoy the DNC and then have their voting rights taken away? Try to front run Iowa, New Hampshire, maybe. So maybe South Carolina and who else votes early? Nevada? Yeah. I think those are good guesses. The answer, in fact, was Michigan and Florida. Both states held their primaries earlier than the National Party had allowed them to. And they were initially stripped of their votes. And then each delegate was allowed half a vote. And then just before the convention in August, Barack Obama, who was the presumptive nominee, requested that they be given their full voting rights back. So Michigan and Florida, that's super trivia. You guys did pretty well on the first question. So so congratulations. But you didn't reach Charlotte Howard levels of perfection. So there's still something to work on. Peak performance, I guess. It's where where we have to go, where we have to get to. (laughs) Yeah, it's always good to have something to aspire to. Okay, well, Idris, John, thank you so much. Thanks, John. Thank you. See you both back here soon. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble. Our sound engineer is Nicola Rofast. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That makes a big difference to how many people can find checks and balance and then listen to us every week you can now find every episode of checks and balance in one place at economist.com slash checks pod please get in touch with us via email if you have any comments on the show the address is podcasts at economist.com in the meantime thanks very much for listening stay safe and stay sane we'll have more checks and balance next week 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.